Hey guys, this is Sam Hunter. Welcome to the Sam Hunter Podcast, where we discuss all things hunting, trapping, and fishing. Welcome to the Sam Hunter Podcast. Today, guys, we've got Jana Waller here. She's the host and producer of Skullbound Chronicles on CarbonTV.com. She's a hunter, angler, skull artist, writer, and more. You can find her on Instagram at SkullboundTV. That's S-K-U-L-L. B-O-U-N-D-T-V. And Jana, thanks for being on the show. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. And I'd love to get started with just a little bit of an intro of what got you started hunting. Well, um, I grew up in the beautiful state of Wisconsin, and I was the second daughter. Uh, I think my dad really wanted a son, so the joke is he sort of turned me into one. But um, now he just noticed a real natural gravitation towards the outdoors. And when I walked the fields in Wisconsin with him, he took me along and sat in the duck blinds and um, signed me up for hunter safety when I was 12. And I've been hunting ever since. So I just had a father who really encouraged it. And back in the 80s, early 80s, you know, that was a little outside of the norm. But uh, yeah, I've been out ever since. Absolutely. And how did Skullbound Chronicles get its start? And for our listeners that may not know what that is, just give us a little bit about um, what Skullbound Chronicles is and how it got its start. Sure. Well, it started out as Skullbound TV, and that started out a decade ago. Um, it was It's my hunting show that was aired for nine years on the Sportsman's Channel. And the reason it's called Skullbound is that I'm a skull artist. I bead and paint skulls. Uh, it started out just for fun and a hobby, but it kind of led into a part-time career back in the day. And we, I do a lot of work with conservation groups. And so I, I donate my artwork to those groups that, and raise money that goes back into protecting the herds, the habitat, the flocks, and our heritage. So we came up with a concept of a hunting show that was a solo female hosted show, but kind of tied in the, the conservation message stronger than most. And launched it on the Sportsman's Channel nine years ago. Now with the way that technology is changing and people are wanting their adventure TV, you know, quicker when they want it. Maybe they want to watch it when they're on break at work or maybe they want to watch it on their phones on the couch while their, you know, spouses are watching something else on the TV. Want adventure TV, I believe, quicker and for free. And so I just made the switch after channel i now air all my new shows coming out on carbon tv which is essentially like youtube for hunters and anglers wow that's incredible and you know when i reached out to you i did go and look and i had watched my first episode um of when you got a moose i think it was one of the earlier episodes and we'll have to talk about that a little bit but i know how difficult it is to just when you're hunting fishing it's difficult enough just to be successful on certain days and some days it seems to come easy but for the most part we know as hunters that um it's a struggle and that's what it is it's hunting but how is it on the show um what's it like hunting while you're being filmed because i imagine that would add a whole other set of obstacles oh definitely it adds to the challenge for sure you know you've got double the you know noise double the smells in the air um it can be a lot, uh, the challenge is to capture the, the shot on camera because 
a lot of times you as the hunter will have a clean open shot, but the cameraman cannot get it on video. So you need to be able to communicate close, be close enough to communicate, but also, um, you know, on the same page. So yeah, it just adds to the challenge of it all. But at the same time, um, it's worth it. It, it makes it, it, it makes it so that you can share your passion with everybody else, whether it's through your platform, like carbon TV or, you know, YouTube or just social media. But it also, like, these are my memories. The last decade, I've been on so many incredible adventures, and I have them forever, you know, documented. So it's worth it. It makes it a little more challenging, but it, to me, it, it makes it all the more fun and enjoyable to be able to share it and to be able to have it forever as well. Right, absolutely. And, you know, I wanted to ask, um, going a little more into that, how often has there been a situation where maybe you've had an amazing animal in view, uh, ready to take the shot and then maybe a cameraman messes it up and scares the animal away or has there <laughs> been any situations like that where um, you know typically you do, do your camera people are they also hunters or are they just uh, camera people do they kind of have a feel of the hunting world before filming yeah um, it hasn't happened all that much luckily for me um, I actually filmed the first uh, eight seasons with my boyfriend at the time, my partner, Jim Kinsey. And so we communicated really well. I think we were really good hunting partners. And so that it, it makes it a little more, more challenging, of course, like you said, to capture it on film. But when you have great communication and you kind of learn each other's hunting skills, I do a lot of do-it-yourself hunting and we did together. And so it was just him and I. Um, this last year, uh, we've both gone our separate ways. He's working on his own show and I'm continuing on with Skullbound Chronicles now. And so I've got this last year I filmed with all new cameramen and it just takes a little bit getting to know their style and their communication, but I don't hunt, I don't hunt with any cameramen are not hunters themselves. <laughs> so on Skullbound TV, um, I've seen one of your hunts for a moose. I believe it was one of the earlier episodes. And if you would just tell us, it can be that story, but a walkthrough of one of your favorite hunts, just one of the ones that really stands out. Everybody has that one or two hunts that kind of stands out above the rest. Um, so what would that be for you and a little bit of a walkthrough of that? Sure. Well, that's a really hard question, though, especially when you've been hunting almost 30 years. But I would, um, yeah, the Alaska moose episode, which is people can go watch a highlight of that hunt. That was in Alaska. That was a do-it-yourself style hunt where we rented a uh, pack string of horses to take us back into the mountains. It was definitely an adventure style hunt where you, you know, you've got to go down to the creek and then boil your water every day. You've got to pack in enough food to be into the mountains for a week. I went with other Woolers, friends of ours from Montana. And that was just an absolutely incredible hunt. Um, you can watch again the highlights on Skullbone Chronicles on Carbon TV and kind of get the gist of it. But anytime you are going in on horseback and you are, you know, planning out a hunt where you are not able to come back to a vehicle or a car every night, I mean, it just takes things to the whole new level. We've got some amazing cinematography on that hunt. It was, I'm looking at him right now. He's above my TV in my living room and he's definitely one of my favorite highlights. Um, I do have to say though that probably, the, my most memorable hunts have to be involved with the veterans that I'm lucky enough to take hunting. I've taken a bunch of combat veterans, a lot of amputees on their first elk hunts here in the West. And those, 
those weeks in the mountains are just life-changing, not just for the vet, but also for me. And uh, to be able to show these guys that they can still get into the mountains and, um, you know, uh, and to watch them sort of go through the trials and tribulations of a hardcore hunt and then have it be successful and to be able to, you know, get up on that bull and wrap their hands around his horns and partake in the process of field dressing the elk and filling their freezers and every single time they go into their freezers to get, you know, a steak or burger, they're reminded of that hunt. It's just, it's, it's an incredible process. I can't wait this fall. I'm taking Jonathan Blank, who is a a former recon sniper on his first elk hunt in Wyoming with RNK hunting. And uh, people can watch that again, coming up uh, this fall on Chronicles, but those are the memories to me that are my favorite. Absolutely. And that's incredible that you take some of those veterans out and uh, share that experience with them. As far as, you know, wild game recipes, if you had somebody, um, a guest come to the house who had never had any kind of wild game meal, but wanted to try it out of all the species, out of everything you've hunted, what would be your go to to try to wow this person and get them on board with wild game? Um, You know, moose, elk, deer, duck. I mean, what would be your go to? And then how would you prepare it? How would you make it? Well, believe it or not, one of my go-tos when I have people over or I'm traveling and going to go to be seeing people is um, either a salami or Theringer made from mountain lion or bear, because that is so much fun to, first of all, people don't understand predator hunting for it's a necessity. It's absolutely critical part of wildlife management that we, and, and because you don't see a lot of mountain lion or bear or bobcat or coyote coyote trust me i don't make theringer out of coyote but you know you don't (laughs) see these predators a lot and so people don't understand what incredible damage they do if their numbers aren't managed but it's super fun for me i love bear i love mountain lion and it's really fun to be able to share that with people and then it opens up the dialogue you know of why it is so important that we do hunt these predators i live in montana i live in the bitterroot valley we have way too many mountain lion there's been so many studies done here We just have too many mountain lion for the carrying capacity of the land here for our elk herds and our deer. It's, there's just too many. They need to be managed like every other predator. And when I'm able to, you know, put out a cheese plate with crackers, cheese and Theringer, which, which is basically like just a, like a, like a lot of people make deer sausage out of their venison. It's just like that. It's already fully cooked. You know, the one thing people have to be aware of when you're eating bear or mountain lion is it does have to be fully cooked. It's not like, an elk steak or a deer steak that you can serve, you know, you can throw it on the grill and just sear it and serve it medium rare. It does need to be fully cooked. And when you have it into process it into uh, specialized meats like that, they're often fully cooked and smoked already, but it's really fun to have people try it. And they're like, Oh, it's so delicious. What is this mountain lion? You know, it's just, it's just right. <laughs> a, a, fun, a fun way and a great way to open up dialogue about wildlife management. Absolutely. And I think that's really neat that, uh, two of the things we would serve are our different predators. So speaking of predators, um, whether you've been hunting predators or hunting, you know, your typical elk, deer, moose, have you ever had any close encounters with grizzlies, mountain lions, wolves, coyotes, anything like that? Um, oh. they, maybe they've surprised you and come at you a little bit. Uh, absolutely. I've never had a charge, um, which is really surprising. I mean, just a couple of years ago, we were archery elk hunting, on the Rocky Mountain front, and we filmed 11 different grizzly bears in 10 days. I mean, it's, wow. it's, it's ridiculous in certain areas here in the West. They're just simply out and overnumbered. We can't hunt them yet. It's a very political issue. 
Um, I've never had any charges, but uh, two years ago here, just outside the Bitterroot Valley, just on the other side of Missoula, we actually had an encounter where we filmed a mating pair of grizzlies for seven hours on the hillside away from us. I believe the closest we came to them was just a couple hundred yards, but we were also on the other side of the creek. So it was a very, very steep ridge. We were very safe. But yeah, for seven hours until we burned every battery that we had on all three cameras, we filmed a mating pair of grizzlies, which was a once in a lifetime encounter. This is not even a real known grizzly area, even though I'm convinced almost all of Montana is grizz area now, um, minus the, right. the eastern part of the state. Um but yeah, you can actually go watch that. We put a little clip together for Chronicles, um, season one Chronicles. You can actually go watch that incredible footage of the mating grizzlies that we filmed. But I've been super lucky. I've not had any black bear or grizzly charges. I've had some pretty intense moments up in Saskatchewan where we hunt black bears with bows off the ground and we don't use blinds. We literally are sitting oh, wow. sitting right there on the floor of the Boreal Forest. I've had some pretty intense counters there. Um, some bluff charges and some huffing and, you know, sows with cubs getting a little angry at you. But uh, I've been pretty lucky. I have not had to, you know, fire a handgun or, or uh, dispense my bear spray just yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that was my next question was, you know, what do you kind of carry on you just in preparation, whatever you're hunting? Uh, for bears, but I guess bear spray would be one of those main things. Yeah, bear spray is really important, especially even when you're not hunting bears. You know, if you're hunting Wyoming, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, where you have an, a chance of running into either a grizzly or a black bear. You know, black bears, I don't, I don't feel are as dangerous as a grizzly for example um the sows are very protective though i i would worry more about a black bear sow with cubs and surprising her than um than than most other predators in the wild but i always if i'm right. in bear country i always have either bear spray and sometimes both um a glock 10 on my hip just uh you know for that backup but if i could only carry one it would definitely be bear spray and the reason being is it, most likely, if you're going to have to pull a gun or pull bear spray in um, seconds, matter of seconds, it's usually where you're walking a creek bed or you're trying to be quiet, stalking on elk, and you surprise a bear, You, who knows what your adrenaline is going to be doing? And if you are going to grab that handgun, you better place a perfect shot on that bear because it's most likely going to come at you, continue to come at you. Um, unless you place a perfectly well shot right between the eyes. Whereas with bear spray, you can dispense that bear spray. It sprays like a wall of pepper spray. And I would trust that wall versus a well-placed shot in the heat of the moment. Absolutely. And, you know, getting into a little bit of, um, I love watching the show. I believe it's called Whitetail Cribs and seeing different, uh, you know, taxidermy mounts and things that people have in their homes. And it's really neat. You know, being able to see that now, of course, you're on the podcast. We don't have any video, but what's kind of just some of the things, you know, uh, I like to ask people what's on the wall. Um, what kind of taxidermy stuff do you have going on? I know you mentioned the moose earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so, so just what's kind of a walkthrough of what you've got going on and maybe some of those most memorable ones. What do you remember about the hunt? Yeah. Most? Well, I'm sitting in my living room right now and I'll try to paint a visual picture for everybody sitting on my couch, looking at my wall in my living room is probably not like most most women's living rooms, but I live alone and I'm looking at my wall um, 
there are three um, public land mule deer, one, two, three antelope, a Saskatchewan whitetail, a South Dakota muley taken with a bow, a archery bull elk, um, a sicka deer from Maryland, um, my moose from Alaska. Behind me is a full body mounted mountain lion. To my left is a full body black bear from Montana. And over above my doorway is a bear rug. So that's just sitting on my couch. My other rooms right. are pretty. <laughs> my other rooms are pretty full of uh, taxidermy or skull work. You know, my I have a beaded Audad skull up above me on the wall, uh, facing my kitchen. Yeah, at horns galore. You know, piles of sheds everywhere from thirty years of shed hunting. You know, I it. My right. house looks like almost a taxidermy museum, but that's because that's what I love. <laughs> you know, and these are Absolutely. people who don't didn't grow up in a hunting family or maybe are not used to taxidermy may walk into my house and think I've absolutely lost my mind. But to me, these are my memories. These are my, my most incredible adventures of my life. And each of them tell a story and it's just fun to have them be so, you know, obvious for lack of a better word in my daily life. I love looking at them. I love it when company comes over and sharing all the stories. And to me, it's artwork and uh, it's what I'm all about. So yeah, there's a lot of deadheads around, but I like it that I even have them in the bathrooms and the bedrooms. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. And you know, there's, you spoke of shed hunting as well. Um, and it's really cool. Just the things you can find walking through the woods when you are hunting. Right. Um, and so what is maybe one of the coolest things you've ever found could be anything while you're on. Yeah. I probably the coolest thing I ever found was, is, uh, it's a spear tip. It's an obsidian spear tip. And it, I found oh, wow. it on an elk hunt in uh, Oregon, found it on private land, of course. And you, it's just beautiful. Like when I bent down, I don't know if anybody else, when they think they might see any kind of arrowhead or spear tip, you know, 99 out of a hundred times you bend down, you pick it up. It's just a rock that kind of looks like the shape of an arrowhead and it's nothing. I actually was elk hunting. We weren't having a whole lot of luck with the elk, but we were finding tons of sheds. So I walked up this plateau to look and thought, oh, that'd be a good spot for bulls to bed. And I'm going to look for sheds. And I'm walking up this sort of game trail, sandy game trail. And the, just the tip of this obsidian um, spearhead was poking out of the sand. And I reached down and picked it up. And I literally was just dumbfounded. Number one, because... I'd never found a beautiful spear tip like that. I'd found pieces of obsidian a lot in New Mexico, but I'd never found a full spear tip like that. And the fact that it's obsidian, which is one of the most sharp but breakable materials that Native Americans used to make tools out of, and the fact it wasn't damaged was unbelievable. And it was on a game trail, which is even more unbelievable. A lot wow. of game walking back and forth. But yeah, I've had two Arrowhead experts both date it it's anywhere between four and six thousand years old and it's it's one of the coolest things i've ever found that is incredible and that was the, another thing i was going to ask was you know how you go about identifying those things and and when you do go to find something like that let's say somebody finds something in the woods and they think it may be something how do they start to find some of these arrowhead experts or different people that can help them figure out exactly what it is they found because a lot of people have found cool things and don't really know yeah. How do I identify it themselves? Yeah, I would just post it on social media. That's what I've done. And like, even through just Facebook, I, I have a couple friends that, you know, do their own napping, make their own arrowheads. And those guys are typically experts on everything like that. And, you know, I, I, I'm certainly, I kind of joke, I'm, um, what, how does the saying go? Like, 
master of done. I, you know, I know a lot, I know a lot about, I know a little bit about a lot of things, but I'm master at none. So I will always go to the experts right. <laughs> for kinds of that kind of thing. I, uh, I posted a picture of it. This is years back. I think I found it eight years ago, maybe nine years ago. And I posted a picture of it. And of course, everybody reached out who's into arrowheads. And then you just, you know, open up dialogue. I've found tons of things. I have no clue what they are, like different kinds of fossils. I've actually found dinosaur bones, just really, wow. really cool stuff. And, you know, the experts will ask you the questions. It's really funny when I found that spear tip, both guy, both of my guys who I knew were arrowhead guys, uh, they're like, take, take 10 pictures of it. And to me, I'm like, well, isn't this one tell you enough? No, they want deep, you know, <laughs> they want the tip and the base right. and how long is it and put it next to a ruler. And where did you find it? Exactly. Where did you find it? Was it near water? Was it here? Was it there? You know, they ask you all the questions that you don't even think about because you're just not even aware of that, you know, of all the intricacies that go into something like that, into an artifact, if you will. You know, I'm, I'm really big into shark teeth as well. And I'm no expert whatsoever, but I, I go down to my dad's who lives in Venice, Florida. I go down to my dad's uh, every winter and we, I've been looking for shark's teeth for 40 years, but not, not expert level. Like the experts who know a lot about fossils and shark's teeth, they go and they dive off the coast of Venice, Florida, or they go into the creek bottoms or they go on literally a dig. Whereas I've always just gone walking the beaches and I've found them. But there's always someone out there who knows way more than you do about anything that you find, whether it's shark's teeth or arrowheads. And I would recommend just posting it on social media because, you know, the, the experts will reach out or go on to like Instagram and in your search box, type in, you know, keywords and you will find experts on anything. Right. Absolutely. And that's an incredible find. And that's fascinating as well that you found dinosaur bones. I actually... Um you know, have always thought that'd be incredible to stumble upon some dinosaur mm -hmm. bones, but that has not happened yet for me. <laughs> uh, what, what States typically has that happened? Well, the you? only state that happened to me was in Montana and it was actually due okay. to Eric Siegfried, who is the creator and owner of Onyx maps. Eric's mom has land over there. Um, and it's funny, Montana is where I live. It is such a diverse, amazingly beautiful state. I live in, on sort of the in the Bitterroot Valley, which is very mountainous, we have tons of mountain lion and bear and elk and deer. And um, But I do most of my antelope hunting and mule deer hunting on the eastern part of the state, six, seven hours away. And it is so diverse and completely um, different in terms of terrain. And over there, um, Eric's mom has property that I don't know if it was because of the of where, how the water was situated millions of years ago you know parts of montana were underwater back in the day you know back in the you wow. know dinosaur days and yeah he his mom's property has held tons of dinosaurs and so we actually went on a dinosaur sort of adventure a bone adventure and found lots of different fragments um lots of prehistoric fish scales and raptor claws and just the coolest oh, coolest neat. stuff you could ever imagine um but that was eastern montana i don't again I, I don't know a whole lot about dinosaur bones and where to look for them but i'm sure especially out west here there's a lot of states that actually have tours where you can do that that's incredible yeah i think if i found a raptor claw i would definitely make that into some kind of necklace and i would not be taking that thing <laughs> off because that's pretty awesome yeah it is kind of awesome <laughs> now as far as I want you to speak to a little bit about what it takes one to start a business and then 
also what it takes to start specifically a hunting business and um, what, what's the correlation there? What are the attributes that it takes to be successful in the industry? Well, that's kind of a complex question. I really think it's, it can be applied though to any industry, any business. Um, you know, I have a degree in public relations and marketing, and so that can be applied in anything. In fact, a lot of people don't know before I got into the hunting industry, I actually, um, did a lot of marketing. I worked for Edward Jones investments for 10 years. So, um, I just think it takes a lot of tenacity. I think part of the reason I found success with Skullbound was that back when I started over a decade ago, I think the industry was really looking for credible women who, literally lived to hunt and loved it and could talk the talk with whether I, you know, I'm, a, I've been a bow hunter over 30 years. Um, whether it's bow hunting or long range rifle hunting, or now I've gotten into handgun hunting. I, back in the day when I started Skullbound, there was a need for women who did a lot of public land hunting and who were in it just for the passion of it. Not, not for the gram, <laughs> let's just say. Right. And so timing <laughs> is everything. I think in order to create a successful business, um, you've got to have good intent. And, you know, my intent, I believe, has always been just to share my passion and to spread the message of conservation and how much we need to truly get involved and be proactive in protecting our hunting heritage. That's why I've gotten involved with groups like the Sportsman's Alliance. Um, the Mule Deer Foundation, National Wild Turkey Federation, groups that put a lot of time and dime back into protecting our heritage, not just, let's say, um, taking down fences or putting in water troughs for deer or relocating turkeys, but more, more so into the court battles that are being you know, set forth every single day by anti-hunting groups who are trying to take away our hunting heritage, take away our gun rights, take away our trapping rights. So I really think it's important, and I've always tried since the very first episode of Skullbound TV to show that message that hunters are animal lovers, and we're trying to just protect the herds and the habitat and our heritage. And um, so the intent behind everything you do, I think, is so important. If your intent is to make a lot of money, the hunting industry is not for you. <laughs> yeah, right. but uh, I think you need a solid, successful business plan to be put in place, whether you have a product to launch in the industry or you want to have a, your own hunting show. I need, I think you need an awareness of how it works. A lot of people don't understand how TV works and TV is not a bad place to be. I just figured it was best for me in moving forward to take my message to a free platform where more people could see it. I didn't want to take it to a YouTube type channel where it, YouTube is very discretionary, especially in today's culture and what we're dealing with right now. You know, anything gun related has a sensory thing on it. They don't let you, they don't right. let you put ads on gun related things, which is ridiculous. Um, so that's why I chose carbon TV. I really wanted to take it's owned by hunters you know, that, that are never going to be discretionary on our gun rights, on our trapping rights, on just our hunting, our hunting rights in general. But I think you just have to have a knowledge of the industry, do a lot of research before you want to launch a product or a TV show or, or anything like that. And also you need to start building what, what's your message, you know, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and these platforms, you know, you need, you need to have, what is your message and why are you trying to get that message out there? And you need to build a social media platform to go along with whatever business you have. Right. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. And you mentioned the antis and we've had plenty of people on the show in the past speak to this and talk about some of the things they've endured or gone through and how they um, overcame yeah. it. 
And so for you, uh, have you had any, you know, attacks from mantis? I'm sure in the course of, you know, all the years that you've been hunting and having the show and everything, you may very well have. How do you overcome those situations? How do you sort of deal with it? What's your advice to those like others I've spoken to who are currently dealing yeah. with that and are in the process? I don't it? know any woman hunter who hasn't dealt with it in some form or fashion. We all deal with the really rude comments. Um, you know, it can get escalated into death threats, which I've dealt with. It was season two or three of Skullbound that I really had my first um, encounter with an anti who was mentally insane. If you ask me, anyone who death threatens you is got mental issues as far as I'm concerned. Um, And then the question becomes of like legality. How, how hard is it to pursue cases of someone who is threatening your life? And are they just threats or is he really, you know, is he breaking the law? I had to actually get an attorney involved out of Missoula. He hired a former FBI guy to crawl, you know, the computer side of things because I was getting death threats. He was also um, going to my sponsors pages and writing really rude, crude comments about me kind of thing. And it's frustrating, you know, when, if you'd never dealt with that before, it's so frustrating and, and it, and it makes you angry and, and you don't know how to stop it. I, the best advice I ever got was from my friend, Melissa Bachman, who said, don't fight it. And she learned the hard way. Don't turn their comments into Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, because what, what they'll do then is simply shut your page down. You know, we've all experienced probably censorship, if you will, from those three platforms I just mentioned. And they're not they're not on our side in terms of pro hunting, pro gun. And what they'll do is just shut you down. And like Melissa was having a lot of death threats and she was reporting these comments to Facebook. And what Facebook did was just simply shut her page down. Well, we, we, we see these attacks. We cannot protect you. We are shutting your page down. Well, that's not what anybody wants. So I truly think the best course of action is to go first into the people's pages that have made the rude or threatening comments block and ban them and then erase their rude comments right off. We don't owe any antis anything. You know, I've had people come back on because a lot of these antis have multiple pages. They're from the PETA groups or the, you know, HSUS, the the Humane Society of the United States of America is the biggest anti-hunting group there is. And they will do, they'll stop at nothing to, to relentlessly harass hunters but the best thing you can do is just block and ban them um, where they can't get back onto your page. They may continue to try under other accounts, but eh, you can't let it get to you. Take the time to block and ban them. And the more you do that, the, the less and less it'll be. It is, it's really rare that I'll get a really rude comment. Now, a lot of them, believe it or not, come from Spain, Brazil, the UK, they come from other countries, wow. but I would just recommend a block, block and ban them and then erase their comments. We don't owe that. We don't have to keep their comments up on our pages, you know, erase them, block and ban them. I had people come back and, oh, you know, you erased my comment. What's the matter? Blah, blah, blah. And they try to bully you that way. Eh, just erase that comment too. And you know, the, the more you do it, the thicker skin you get. And then it doesn't, it becomes old hat. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, you know, they, it does seem like they'll attack anything these days. Um, and the three things we talk about here on the podcast are hunting, trapping, and fishing. You know, in some ways, all over the country, all three of those things are under attack. Yeah. But how I've always kind of viewed it is it seems like fishing is at the top where most people are acceptable of it. Hunting is more in the middle, um, but there are a lot of people that do oppose it. And then trapping is on the bottom side mm-hmm. of that, um, where a lot of people have 
you know, they get pretty upset about it. And so what, what we try to do is just educate on all three of those things and the people that are kind of in the middle to sort of just show them the benefits of all these right. things and then let them kind of make that decision for themselves. And it's been good. But as you said, you know, when it's when it's antis, you really know, especially when they're dead set on it, you know, there's no change in their mind. So like you said, just kind of deleting or, or blocking is really the best route to go. Um, I, you know, I've had people come at me for basically saying I should drop the trapping part of hunting, trapping and fishing. And I just try to stand strong for, you know, all the rights of, of being outdoors. And um, and so, yeah, you know, we've all experienced those similar things uh, going into in the midst of all the stuff going on in the country right now. Of course, there's been covid, which has affected a lot of things. But there's lots of different opinions right now on how covid has affected hunting. And most of what I've seen, I'm not saying all of it because I've seen a lot of different views on it. Most of what I've seen has said that it's actually positively affected hunting and that all over the nation um, hunting licenses have skyrocketed, especially when there was that little, there was like a week or two, I think maybe it was longer, but didn't seem long that they were saying, you know, meat might become an issue and nobody would be able to get meat. And so everybody started buying hunting licenses. How do you sort of see this playing out? Is it truly helping hunting? Um, Cause I've just heard a lot of different opinions about it. We just love to hear yeah, yours. I think it depends on two different things. When you're talking about hunting in terms of, a company that produces products. I have had a couple of my partners that I work with. They're really struggling. You know, they, um, they are dealing with, you know, their plants getting shut down where the products are made. They're dealing with shipping issues. They're dealing with, you know, money issues, which has been very difficult on them. But hunting in general as a whole, I do believe that this crazy, chaotic, unprecedented time that we're living in right now is creating at least an awareness with people who've never hunted before of where their food comes from. You know, a lot of people have Absolutely. no connection to their food like we hunters do. They don't understand that. Like, I never buy beef. Trust me, I have tons of rancher friends and I'm totally pro beef. But when I am able to get out there as much as I am and I have my my freezers filled with, you know, mule deer, whitetail, antelope, bear, moose, you name it, I don't have to. And and fish and pheasants and, and duck and all the other things, too, that, that people might not think about. Um, you know, I think it's created an awareness, at least, of where their food comes from maybe a better understanding of why we hunters didn't panic all that much when the food was running low, especially the meat in the grocery stores. You know, I think it's going to create people to think about even their gardens and how to can better, how to can their venison. I just met a friend, uh, a friend of a friend, Dave, who's cans all of his meat. He, he lived in a yurt for 20 years. That is something I can totally see myself getting into when I have a little bit more time and I'm not filming as much, you know, typically I'm done with one hunt and I'm off to the next. So I don't have a whole lot of time to really dive into the processing side of the meat, um, and doing all the funky, cool things, smoking it and making jerky and canning and, but this COVID thing has at least created an awareness in people of where their food comes from. And maybe people are thinking twice now about going and filling their own freezers. And not only that, there's the component of hunting that isn't have, doesn't have anything to do with the notched tag or filling the freezer, but it's just getting out into the great outdoors. And, you know, mother nature, I've always said is so healing and, I have done a lot of camping this summer and just gotten away from the craziness because it's a way to just sort of reset 
And I think right now when a lot of families can't do their typical family things, whether it's going to the movies or, you know, they can't travel like they have been, they're forced to figure out what to do in the confines of their own backyard and they're getting out and they're hiking and they're fishing and they're camping and they're making use of public lands where maybe they never have before due to COVID. And that is a beautiful thing because a big component of hunting is just being out in the great outdoors, but maybe someone who's new to hunting hasn't really thought about like, Oh, it's not just about pulling that trigger. It's about everything that goes into it and uh, the healing side of it all. And so I think that can be a definite positive to come out of all this chaos. Absolutely. I agree with that. And speaking to people finding out, you know, and more just realizing um, because a lot of people know it, but they just don't really think about it. Like you said, of where their food comes from, where the meat comes from. And it's funny because I, you know, I know a big uh, music producer in Atlanta um, and I'm not going to mention his name, but he, he does hunt, but because of the music industry and a lot of people in the music industry being against hunting, he doesn't necessarily broadcast. Right. Um, but he had, he had gotten a nice buck and, he was just going to, you know, he, he had it done at the tax room. He was going to have it put up at home. But he told me, you know, I really want to put it up at the studio. I just, it, like you said, for those memories, remembering everything. But he just said, I don't think there's any way I could do it. And I asked him, you know, basically what would happen if he did that. And he said, obviously, a lot of his clients would be turned off by that. And we, he kind of joked that they'd probably be sitting there with their Chick-fil-A sandwich or their steak ordered from Outback mm. and saying, how could you do that? You know, and so it's just kind of hypocritical and it's it's really sad to see but that is kind of the state of things and hopefully we get more to a point with you know people like you and people with tv shows and podcasts and um doing big things for hunting trapping fishing getting people excited about it to where one day not as many people will have to you know not not necessarily hide from it but just be oh i so agree Um, i have a lot of friends in that same boat i have a lot of friends in the music industry a couple in the tv you know mainstream tv world and first off, let me say that I don't judge them at all. If their, you know, main source of income is going to be drastically affected by standing tall behind hunters, I totally understand it. It's not for me to say, you know, that they should or shouldn't, but I'm with you. I I so hope that someday it works out that they can stand tall behind it. I mean, like, you know, you hardly ever see actors and actresses willing to stand tall behind it. Um, I believe Eva Langoria has, Chris Pratt has, Um, but not a lot, you know, and they're huge hunters. And I think that's a beautiful thing, but I I wouldn't judge anybody who's income dependent on it. I'm lucky lucky that that is my income. I can, I need to mass blast my, you know, my love of the hunt and my, my message on conservation. And, but I hope someday sooner rather than later that people who do have really big platforms, you know, like even Joe Rogan, um, he's brought a lot of people over into the bow hunting world. And I think that's fantastic. And, you know, right. I, I, we just need to, we need to stand tall behind those people and hopefully give them encouragement. Hopefully they see that they, that they're able to do that. I get it though. I get it. Like even, even I just, um, I just was asked to be on the sportsman's advisory board for Trump. Now, mind you a year ago, I might've thought twice about it just simply because my social media is about hunting and that's what I'm about. I didn't, I've never wanted it to turn it political, but I'll tell you it, the state and what we are living in right now, I almost feel like 
I accepted the um, advisory board position because if I don't stand tall, if I don't stand tall right now for what I believe in, and that is, I believe in the the flag. I believe it should be, uh, you know, against the law to stand on the flag, to burn the flag. I believe so strongly in our freedoms in this country and our military and the economical side of things, which no one is talking about right now. I believe, you know, in having someone who understands the economy of our country and foreign trade in our country. And we are just so lost right now with all the chaos of going on with everything that, I mean, clearly I I don't even think I need to spell it out, but I I feel like, like that same thing about what you were just talking about is if we don't stand tall right now, you're going to fall for anything. And uh, hopefully everybody can start to just maybe slowly, even if it's just discussions with people famous, whether it's, you know, pro athletes or musicians or actors and actresses can, even open up that dialogue a little bit better with people and say, yeah, yeah, I hunt and I'm going to serve you venison steaks tonight. I mean, that, that would, that would be a beautiful thing. Absolutely. And congrats on that, accepting that position. That's incredible. And also what kind of will go into that position? If you can talk to it a little bit. I actually Um, don't even know at this point. Um, We're going to have meetings, um, at least one FaceTime sort of type meeting um, once every few weeks. Um, The council is newly is being formed. There's a lot of other advisory councils for Trump. Like there's the Hispanic council for Trump. There's the, you know, there's a lot of different groups that are on sort of, sort of what their forte is. And this sportsman advisory council is going to be just a lot of leaders in the industry getting together and how we can encourage one another to to stand tall, first of all, and to get out and vote and what the vote means because really voting for one party party or another now you've got to look at what they stand for do they stand for pro gun do they stand for pro hunting what do they stand for and to me it's clearly trump stands behind hunting he understands that hunting is a necessity in this country he understands of course because junior is such a big hunter himself that it's a necessity for the wildlife management in this country and we hunters pay for that and we are there are more deer, more elk, more, more, everything is because of hunters and more, more conservation efforts because of hunters. And uh, so I think it's a clear decision uh, when it comes to voting in the polls this fall. And and I'm, it's, I'm not sure exactly what the board is, but maybe I'll just need to come on once I learn a bit more. This just happened last week. So when I learn a bit, a little bit more, we'll come on and do another podcast. Absolutely. That would be wonderful. And um, that's incredibly exciting stuff. I think that sounds you know, like something that we definitely need. Um, and I'm glad that they're thinking to do that. Um, so that's going to be exciting to hear mm-hmm. more on that. And also, you know, before we get to our closing here, a little bit about your skull art, because I'd never seen anything <laughs> like it. Um, and I think that's how I found you is, you know, going through Instagram or, or some social media platform. And I saw this giant, it was either an elk or deer or something, but a skull. And I saw this and I thought that, you know, that's something new I haven't seen before. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, catches the attention of a lot of people. So what, how did you kind of get into the scar and what are some of the different species you've done? Maybe some that are really out there that nobody would have thought of and what kind of inspired that idea? Um, I got inspired to start a long time ago, like maybe 15, 20 years ago, I started painting my deer skulls. I used to live in Wisconsin. I grew up in Wisconsin. My dad had actually taken a photo of this beautifully painted ornate 
Native American style dot design uh, ram skull that he saw when he was, I believe, in New Mexico. And he sent me a picture. Believe it or not, I, I think it was a Polaroid. <laughs> and that would be my dad. Right. And uh, so <laughs> I started painting my own deer skulls and uh, hung them in my office. A lot of people liked them, started painting them for my friends. And then it sort of one thing led to another. And I started donating some to my conservation groups, um, banquets I would go to with my dad, like Ducks Unlimited or um, uh, QDMA. And so it just started branching out from there. I started my website, paintedskulls.com, which don't even go on. I haven't updated it in like five years. Um, because I, and then I started raising money for conservation groups and it was, it's turned, it just turned into this super fun hobby thing. Well, then um, we started Skullbound TV and I started to get way more connected into the conservation side of things. Um, to date, I've raised, I believe I'm over $72,000 with my skull art for conservation causes. Wow. And uh, yeah, it's sort of just grew. Yeah, it's just grew into this big thing and it's super fun. I don't do as many skulls as I used to. I used to do it for anybody who would send me their skull and I'd send them a price list and, you know, ship it and send it back. And I just, I'm running out of so much time. I'm now fully producing my show on my own. It's taking up tons of my time. And I only do maybe half a dozen um, skulls for people, just for regular clientele, uh, as well as about half a dozen skulls I do for my conservation groups. But yeah, it's super fun. And so I take a skull, whether it's uh, any kind of deer skull, coyote, bear, moose. I've done a lot of African game species. Um, I've done a, a lot of really cool projects over the years. Um, a lot of them have true meaning behind them. Uh, one of the ones that just came to my head off the top of my head, I went coyote hunting with Medal of Honor recipient Clint Romache, who is one of the, our country's biggest heroes, uh, most humble hero. Of course, most of them are. And we went coyote hunting together and we double tapped this coyote, meaning we shot it at the same time. And I ended up painting wow. the coyote skull um, sort of military themed. Um, he lost eight of his men in the Battle of Kamdash um, which was uh, the battle behind his book, Red Platoon, and sort of, uh, and then we auctioned that off, Clint auctioned that off at one of his fundraisers. And so, you know, it's really meaningful stuff behind some of the skulls that I get to work on. But a lot of them are used to be painted. I'm way more into the beading now where I, I bead them with all kinds of beads. Some, fan, some of the fancier ones are with Swarovski crystals, some of the real natural looking ones are with arrowheads and wooden beads but you can see them all on my instagram um, if you go under skulls under the highlights of my instagram stories you'll see the wide variety of the kind of skulls that i do but it's just super fun i wish i had more time to do it but i know someday down the road when i slow down a little bit i it's a perfect thing to get back into full time absolutely and you know for closing out the show what i'd love for our listeners to hear um, I saw a video of you just saying your why yeah. um, and, and, you know, just your why for why you hunt. And it was powerful and it just kind of speaks to what we're all about. So if you would just kind of close this out with your why. My why, um, it, it's complex, but simple at the same time. Um, I hunt for the healing power of hunting. Mother nature is healing of itself. You know, I believe everything has a vibration. Every living thing has a vibration, even trees, grass, everything animals, people, you name it. And when you are surrounded in the great outdoors and, you know, the breeze is blowing through your hair, the sun's beating on your face, you're hearing the birds chirp, 
you might be hearing a bugle in the distance, or you might be hearing a hoot owl in the morning from your tree stand, whatever it may be. It's healing. It's connecting. When I'm hunting, I always think about how hard life used to be, which makes me feel how easy life is today. And with that sense of gratitude, that's probably the most powerful word hunting brings to me is just gratitude. I'm grateful for the ease of life today. I'm grateful for the, you know, skills my dad and other people have taught me that I can go out and fill my own freezers. I'm grateful for the legs I have to my body that I, the lungs that I can walk over the mountain, you know, I'm just grateful. And so hunting to me, not only am I grateful for the food and the experience it provides, I'm just grateful for my life in general. And I think hunting can provide that for anybody. Absolutely. Jana, thank you so much. That is a powerful why. And we appreciate you taking some of your time joining us on the Sam Hunter podcast today. We wish you much continued success. And thank Thanks, you again. Sam. I appreciate it to you too. Thanks for joining us on the Sam Hunter podcast, where we discuss all things hunting, trapping, and fishing. We had a great time today talking with Jana Waller of Skullbound TV. Join us next week on the Sam Hunter podcast, and we'll see you there.